Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome. My name is Michael Johnston, and this is another episode of New Books in Sociology, a channel on the New Books Network. Today, I have Dr. Gary Allen Fine with me. Today, we have Gary on the show to discuss his newest book, The Hinge, Civil Society, Group Cultures, and the Power of Local Commitments, which was published by the University of Chicago Press just this year. Thank you for joining me today, Dr. Fine. Well, it is a pleasure to be here, Michael. Excellent. So to to begin our conversation, could you tell me a bit about how you um, started to explore the um, idea of the hinge as being a, um, maybe calling it a meso level uh, connector or bridge between the micro and the macro? Absolutely. Uh, And so in doing this, uh, I want to go back and briefly back to the beginning of my academic career. Uh, When I entered graduate school, this was in 1972, uh, I was interested in the intersection of three large uh, uh, sociological and social psychological concepts. They, you know, how those three were related and the three were structure, which is a mainstay of sociological theory. Interaction, which was taken up by the symbolic interactionists and other micro-sociologists of the 1950s, 1960s, uh, and culture. And culture was just beginning to emerge in sociology in the 1970s. I wanted to see how those three large uh, constructs were were related. And in particular, in graduate school and and throughout my career of over 40 years, I have been focusing on small groups and on small group cultures. Now, to me, it is not sufficient to talk about how individuals have their lives shaped and how they construct meaning for themselves as individuals. And I think it is not sufficient to look at broad structures. What I am interested in is the intersection of the micro and the macro. And I see that as being part of this meso level, which is what the book, The Hinge, is all about and is, in fact, what all of my ethnographic research in, in the various places that I've conducted that uh, that field work is all about. And so that is my goal. Um, now, you asked me about The Hinge. The Hinge specifically is to argue that the structure and the individual are interconnected, that they are not isolated from each other, but that they connect through this middle level, that that is the 
way in which we can bring in the structure of which sociologists are so enamored and the individuals of which psychologists are so enamored. So that's where this this idea comes from. It's, it's really a project that has been developed over some uh, nearly half a century, frankly. And one of the three parts that uh, components of the three areas that were um, heavily uh, part of your uh, beginnings in the 1950s, 1960s, early on, um, you were talking about structure, culture, and interaction. Uh, does structure inform everyday human interactions? And, and if so, how do, how do you find that it does? Okay. Well, it, it certainly shapes the way that we develop what Irving Goffman called an interaction order. So for Goffman and then for his followers, those who he influenced, it is not simply interaction, it is not simply random behaviors, but those behaviors become systematized. They become part of structures. So that Goffman in his, his wonderful important book, Frame Analysis, begins with the uh, 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 coat check area in a theater. And he argues that, that those, you know, it's the fact that there is that theater that can arrange for that place in which coats get checked that makes it part of a structure. That it's not just people behaving randomly, but it's institutions creating places and spaces in which order becomes possible. That that's, we sociologists are fundamentally concerned with how social order is possible. There are pure structuralists, just look at the institutions and the organizations, the pure social psychologists look at individual socialization and the meso-level theorists, those who emphasize what I call local sociology, look at the role of groups and interaction systems. And that structure and interaction is reciprocating. They're, I, I would like to metaphorically say that they're talking to each other constantly. It's not that they are in separate locations. They're informing one another. Social order um, informs the interactions which, incur, which occur in these social structures. Is that right? And what that, That's correct. And that's precisely what I mean by the hinge. But the hinge suggests that these are semi-autonomous realms, the realm, the institutional structures and the individual selves, you know, and that they come together, that they are hinged through this group process. And for the endurance of a, of a group... Is it is it necessarily necessary for them to be able to manage and, and work through dissent and, and internal differences in order to maintain this hinge that exists between the between the structure and the interactions? That's a very important point because there is a tendency for us to say, for those of us who are interested in groups, to say 
groups are wonderful. They always work. They're happy places. And yet we know that they are not always happy places, that there is conflict, that there is tension. And so as part of this analysis, uh, I look at the role of conflict as creating these spaces of interaction. And conflict can either be orderly, it can be a form of disruption that supports institutions and supports action, that supports groups, or it can be so disruptive that it breaks those groups apart. And, and so that, you know, sometimes conflict is healthy. It builds groups and sometimes it's destructive. Conf so conflict can either be destructive or it can help a, a group advance. Um, what are some ways in which the, the conflict that occurs within groups serve as a corrective role in the community to um, maybe bring it back to, to a, a, a balance? Well, uh, Last year, uh, Ido Tavori and I wrote an essay in the journal Theory and Society in which we were focused on the role of disruption in social systems. And we suggested that there are two kinds of disruptions. There's the kind that perhaps we first think of, which we would call disruptions of. Those are disruptions that break apart social systems that lead to recognition that we are not together, we don't belong together, that contributes to uh, exit, for instance. Uh, on the other hand, the argument that we make that there are some disruptions for, not just disruptions of, but disruptions for, and these are the kind of disruptions that lead to social change and organizational betterment. Um, and that is part of the, the argument that we're making, that sometimes when you argue, you come up with a better negotiation. And that's what social movements are all about. And so that's part of the argument that we are making in that essay and that I'm making in, in the book, The Hinge. In particular, when we are talking about small groups, these uh, these conflicts and whether or not they can be managed to uh, to maintain group uh, is is very crucial because a loss of one or more members in a, in a small group can be devastating to that group. Uh, that's true, particularly if they are influential members or that they are part of a subgroup, and. Uh, you know, that's certainly the case, and, and in my ethnographies, I have witnessed uh, on various occasions disruptions in groups in which you know, groups don't always succeed. They sometimes fall apart, but sometimes they improve and improve as a function of conflict. And the next uh, series of questions that we go to talks a bit more about the emergence of these social groups. What role does coordination play in the development of the group? Well, uh, coordination and collaboration are part of the, the my open chapter uh, in which I'm arguing that in order 
to move beyond an individually focused social psychology. We need to recognize that groups happen, that social life happens, that it happens through that process of collaborating with others, and that collaboration is due to the coordination of action. This is what Herbert Bloomer, in his essays and symbolic interaction, talks about the, uh, uh, the coordination of lines of action. Uh, and that when we interact with others, we're creating this interaction order, Goffman's sense, uh, and we are doing it through the possibility that we will understand each other and where we come from. And in doing that, we create what I call uh, circuits of action. And circuits of action are, as I describe them, forms of uh, routine, expected routine. We can speak of them as being norms, but in action terms and behavioral terms, they are shared routines that we understand what is likely to happen as we collaborate together. And not all of these groups develop necessarily in the same way. I think maybe it has something to do with uh, how sound the social structure is and how much social order and how many rules and regulations are associated with the structure in which these groups are being um, organized in. Uh, some groups are highly coordinated with very rigid bureaucracies, uh, politics, and other groups and movements emerge organically or in a grassroots, grassroots form, such as one of the um, books that you uh, cite in your um, in the hinge about leaderless jih jihad groups, which was studied by Mark Sageman in two thousand eight. Yes, is it possible for these for the different groups to exist peacefully, cooperatively, in an orderly fashion without law and policy, without such rigid bureaucracy? Oh well, well m many groups don't have a rigid bureaucracy. A rigid bureaucracy, and this gets into Weberian theories of bureaucracy, you know, has certain advantages in terms of predictability, in terms of a sense of fairness, but disadvantages as well in terms of eliminating the kind of flexibility that we often want to see in groups and the kind of group culture that adds to the the sense of belonging, the collective identity, the desire to be present. And, and I think that those forms of group culture are particularly important. It, when you have that kind of collaborative culture, you know, a, a joking culture, for example, a teasing culture, for example, you are able to have bureaucratic offices which sometimes are very uh, unfeeling places, become places that people, workers, wish to, uh, wish to spend their time. Uh, organizations, workplaces, informal groups, when they have that ability to collaborate, that flexibility, you know, that non-bureaucratic formalized structure, they had, they, they gain a certain collaborative strength. And that's what I talk about 
in the book, in each of the chapters, um, and I have seven chapters, seven substantive chapters, I present three examples from uh, various research streams. And that allows me to look at some bureaucratic systems, uh, some systems with very strong norms. And you mentioned the, the instance of uh, terrorist groups as an example, and, and some far more informal groups. And uh, I think worth uh, mentioning are conventions that are associated with society and the significance that such a social regulation may play in order for uh, in order for groups to exist peacefully, cooperatively, and in an orderly fashion without such rigid bureaucracy. Is that true that there are um, some social regulations that play a, a key factor in keeping these groups peaceful without such a rigid bureaucracy? Well, in all in all groups, you need this sense of uh, a cultural commitment. Let's call it that, a group culture. And that group culture is a result of collective identity, and it builds collective identity. And so having that provides this opportunity to, uh, uh, to, to see yourself as part of something that is larger than you as an individual, uh, you know, and, and for instance, in, in the chapter that I have on social relations, you know, I will talk, I, I talk about the various three different kinds of groups in which social relations are important. One, a, a set of groups in an impoverished community, which, rely, which relies on individuals helping each other you know, even though they don't have the resources necessary as individuals, but the group has resources. And then I look at more informal leisure group uh, in which the simply the act of belonging, the sharing time and sharing space together provides cohesion. And then I look at a more elite group that is part of a system power. And this, that latter group, the, the pleasures of being in that group are as important to the group process as is the power structure that they can rely on. Yeah, I think maybe this goes into a bit of Durkheim's mechanical versus organic solidarity, right? And how cohesion is, is made as part of the group. Well, I certainly rely on, you know, Durkheim's theories of collective effervescence. Yes. And, um, you know, I see that, that it's not just effervescence, but it's collective effervescence. The fact that you are part of a group in which other people are responding in similar or even identical ways. And that recognition of their response further builds commitment to the group. It shows the collective meaning or the collective bond that brings them together to begin with. Without that collective meaning I, and coordination intentionally coming together, uh, I think it would be difficult to, to have a functional group of any size. 
though small or large. Yep. I mean, there needs to be a sense that the group matters and that people can work within it. Uh, and in other words, the groups have pasts, collective memories. You know, they've experienced things together. They have a present in which they are figuring out what to do next. And that figuring out is their imagined future. And so you have past, present, and future. And all of those contribute to the, uh, the solidification of the group as a meaningful space for interaction. So we've been focusing um, within a group, uh, intra-group formation. Now let's, let's maybe shift to cooperation that exists across groups. On what occasion would and have groups come together to make a concerted effort towards overcoming uh, the joint recognition of a problem across different groups? Right. So, you know, I, I was, as I mentioned, I'm a small groups researcher and, you know, that's where my, my heart lies. It is said of children, when you give a child a hammer, everything becomes a nail. Well, something similar is true for, for academics. You know, when you have a focus, like a small group, a small group culture, you tend to think that everything is an example of that, that that is what, what really matters. And yet you also, I also understand that there, there are limits to that. And so in my final chapter, I talk about extensions of groups. In other words, I argue that groups, that networks are composed not primarily of individuals in context with each other, in connection with each other, but of linked groups. And that is what constitutes a subculture, a network, and eventually a society, that there are groups that overlap People are members of several groups, maybe many groups simultaneously, and that those intersections are what creates a broader social structure. Now, through that, as groups get together, as they have goals and goals that are in common with other groups, that network becomes activated. Uh, negotiation takes place not just within the context of the group, but with between you know those individuals who have connections. Uh, so when groups collaborate, they collaborate as larger groups. They develop a group culture, an interaction order, uh, a system of routine, and that becomes their public face. I think of social organization theory and uh, using an open systems model to understand group interaction when you're talking about this to realize that uh, groups aren't uh, just working among each other, but there's a much larger uh, society uh, out there that uh, find themselves at times in, in interaction with these smaller groups. 
Well, the, and, and the way that negotiation takes place among groups is typically that a group will form that provides that connection. So if you have, let's say you have two corporations that are thinking about merging. Well, you have group structures. You may have lawyers who are negotiating with each other or leaders of the organization, boards of directors who are negotiating with each other. That constitutes a new group. So I am always, you know, always looking for those spaces of interaction in which new culture gets created. And I confess, you know, I, I will admit halfway through our discussion or partway through our discussion that, you know, to, to the extent that I do this, to the extent that I make this emphasis, I may also miss out on those things that a macro level sociologist sees that their different level of analysis or that the micro level sociologist sees that is how individuals construct their own set of meanings. But I'm always looking as a theorist, as a particular kind of theorist. And this is the reason that I wrote the book, The Hinge, for that group culture and that interaction order. So you're talking about new types of culture. This is the perfect time to um, to move forward with this question. Technology is always advancing, and internet has been um, around for a bit now. What what role has internet played, and other uh, technologies played in the emergence and study of groups in a world with high speed internet, social media, and advanced computer technology? like TikTok or other types of uh, new applications that might be on a phone, does it, what, what sort of role does that play in, in right. helping and solidifying groups? Well, we are in the process of solidifying that for seeing how those structures get established. I think we're still in, in that process in which relations are being rethought and reconstructed. So in the last chapter, in the chapter on extensions, I explicitly attempt to understand as best I can how the internet, how social media matters in terms of the creation of a group culture. And you know, I would say, I, I mean, I try to be honest with myself uh, that I am a scholar of a particular historical moment and that there will be other researchers who will come along after me uh, or developing now who will take the ideas that I have about groups and their culture and apply them more explicitly to the online groups. I think there are ways in which online groups, and I'm part, part of some online groups, that they're quite similar to the groups that I'm talking about. But on the other hand, they can be more diffuse. 
and there may be other norms of communication. You know, with face-to-face -face communication, or even this telephonic communication that we're having right now, uh, you know, if we can go back and forth and kind of negotiate with each other. On Facebook, on Twitter, and other spaces, TikTok, and so forth, that kind of negotiation is quite different. And, uh, you know, while I have some speculations on it, you know, always looking for the development of ongoing relations, I also leave that to the next generation of scholars, my students, my younger colleagues, uh, to figure out some of the things that, that, you know, I recognize are out there, but that I don't fully address. Well, one thing that I can think of right now is just the uh, diminished relationship that might exist as a result of social media or even the telephonic communication that we're doing right now. The the lack of face work that is available to us and, and the ability, the inability to see um, emotion by expressions on our face. That That's true. And that's why you have emojis, you know, or an attempt to do that. But you also have a, a certain kind of uh, ambiguity, a certain kind of uncertainty in terms of communicating online. And, and I confess to you that, you know, I, I enjoy these kind of conversations, these one-on-one -on -one conversations, or, uh, but, uh, you know, I am, I am not so much for, uh, participating in, uh, uh Twitter space or Facebook space, uh, but that's, you know, each generation of sociologists has their own concern. We build on the shoulders of giants. Yeah. It's, uh, I guess that's Newton and then Robert Merton who yeah. picked up on that. And even the discipline of sociology was built on the shoulders of giants, right? Psychology and uh, many other sciences prior to sociology. And that's what... I think makes it unique as a science. Uh, well, I, I I wouldn't disagree with you. You know, we, we go back to Plato, who is uh, you know the philosophers would like to uh, grab Plato for their own, understandably, but in some important ways, Plato and his uh, the other Greek philosophers were very much sociologists. Were interested in social relations. So we talk about TikTok, we talk about social media, we talk about a variety of different social structures in which interactions occur and uh, are made orderly through the structural expectations that are um, that give that give uh, structure that that serve as a boundary for how people interact within these different uh, structures. What is this role of this imagined community, the imagined community as defined by Benedict Anderson in understanding mm -hmm. uh, groups and the transformation of groups? Okay. So uh, Benedict Anderson and, you know, his, his work, Imagined Communities, is uh, it, it clearly a, a classic work and very important. What Anderson meant by imagined communities is different than what 
I mean, and that other meso-level theorists mean. Anderson was concerned with the role of language and literature in creating states. Nation, yeah. the, the idea of a nation was Anderson's, or the idea of a people, the idea of ethnic group, was what Anderson was primarily concerned with, at least in my reading of, of his work. Uh, but there are imagined communities at all levels, and this has to do with this, the idea of collective identity, shared meanings, that when we are part of a group, let's say a academic unit in Department of Sociology, for example, you know, we have an imagined view of what that is, what that group means. And in the context of that group, we have shared, you know, if the group is successful, our, our meanings are shared with each other. Uh, and that becomes, for me, what we mean by imagined community. So when I studied the National Weather Service local offices, I studied three local offices, they had, each of them had the idea of what their community was, what their local group was. They each had a group culture. They each had a collective identity. And that's what I would say constituted their imagined community. And likewise, for chess teams that I studied or for... Uh, the uh, artists who are getting getting their master in fine arts degrees, you know, they have they all have a sense of what their group is. Little league baseball players, for instance, and that has been those kind of imagined communities. Those meso level tiny publics are part of what I have been exploring throughout my academic career. Now these imaginary lines, these boundaries that uh, that are created within groups, small groups, with your uh, particular area of study, they they can have positive and negative consequences. I think the negative one negative consequence can be exclusiveness and uh, potential potential uh, potentially opening the door for things like racism or sexism. But then in the, in the same sense, it can also have positive consequences in the sense that uh, I think it can solidify groups and uh, give meaning to one's life. Is this accurate? Okay. In, in the book, I make a distinction between bonding and banding. Yes. The groups can bond or they can band together. In the first case, we're talking about the integration of group members, the people who wish to be part of that group, that interaction scene. In terms of that's bonding, in terms of banding, it is the creation of boundaries, the sense that we are a band of brothers, that we belong together and you don't belong as part of our group. And that can involve gender discrimination, it can uh, involve racial or ethnic discrimination, it can be class-based, regional, whatever, there can be any number of elements, those things that we would consider basically malign in terms of group dynamics. 
then what you want is a bonding situation that has bridges. So there's bonds, bands, and bridges. And the bridges are those points of entry, allowing others who see this activity zone, this tiny public, as being desirable to become part of the group and for the group to welcome welcome others into their midst. So yes, uh, you know, groups can have, uh, you know, by virtue of their boundaries, if those boundaries are too sharp, if the walls are too high, you know, that can have the effect of limiting the diversity that often can benefit a group. We are both in higher education. I think higher education might be a representative example example of the bridging technique, the admissions process, and bringing people into the into the university or the sports teams and having walk ons and things like that, where it's an opportunity for people to join the group uh, that that has a boundary, but also has a process to bring new people into the university. Well, we need to be aware as teachers. Uh, not to band together, to have a space that is open to all, that is not just race, although that's obviously important, not just gender, not just class, and we are talking about first-generation students, but also politics, you know, that we want to have people, our students, be, we should want at least, liberals and conservatives. And we don't want to eliminate either. We don't want to, you know, we are better off if we have a community which has libertarians and liberals and conservatives and Marxists and, you know, the whole range of of people, you know, uh, Trump people, Bernie Sanders people, Joe Biden people, uh, you know, all the rest. Uh, I think we benefit from that. And as a teacher, I always am, am pleased, flattered, when students will come up to me after class and say, you know, Professor Fine, I really didn't know what your politics were. And to me, that that's kind of uh, something that I strive for pedagogically. That my job is to sharpen students' minds, to, but not to give them a particular, any one kind of ideology. You know, I, I choose who to vote for when I'm in the voting booth, but the classroom shouldn't be a voting booth. It should be a discursive space. It should be a group, a group with its own culture and its own interaction order that provides openness for all. So the big question of the day is, are the, uh, are the development of groups and communities an important element of society? And if they are, why? Well, I believe that it's crucial you know, and that's the reason that I wrote uh, first in 2012 my book, Tiny Publics, 
which is about the development of group dynamics. And then particularly in 2021, the hinge, which is particularly about civil society. And so this new book has that kind of uh, uh, civic component, that civic sociology component, that is to say that it's not just that we are part of uh, mushroom collecting clubs or little league baseball teams or fantasy gaming groups, all, all things that I've studied, but that we are part of groups that wish to contribute in some way to society. And it's these groups, these outward looking groups that I speak of as, as tiny publics. Um, and so that is part of the argument that I am making here. The groups are useful in themselves. They provide satisfaction for individuals. They are important for a feeling of esteem, a feeling of belonging, but they are also important in terms of the way that society gets organized. And having these groups and having these groups be bonded groups and having these groups with bridges is beneficial for society. One of the things that I tell students and introduction to sociology, one of the few things that I can tell them for sure as a sociologist is that uh, we are social beings. And this division of labor uh, brings us into groups that uh, that give us meaning to our everyday life. So uh, I, it's important to have this research out there to, to bring us back to uh, understanding our, our maybe something that is uh, uh, as basic as we are social beings. Right. I mean, that, that's very good. But I want to extend it a little bit further that to say we are social beings is what the social psychologists say, and they're right to say it. We are social beings, but we are beings for whom sociality, sociability matters, that we are beings in contact with other beings. And to go back to this issue of, you know, the uh, social media and websites and, and so forth, the challenge is to create a system in which we can keep that sociability, that we're not just isolated, arguing with each other, insulting each other, uh, liking each other, but that we're actually developing meaning. Now, this book, I, I was very fortunate to uh, be doing the uh, final edits, the copy edits, in April. And this mattered because, if we remember, April 2020 was a time in which we were isolated because of the COVID virus. The country was shut down. It still is shut down in many ways. But uh, the University of Chicago Press allowed me to add a, an addendum, a, a concluding uh, section in which I talk about the hinge in the time of COVID and the way in which that isolation 
created the need for connections in various ways that we speak of being part of the same pod, the same group, you know, not just living in total isolation as modern day hermits, but that that, that reaction to COVID reminded us how much we need sociability, how much we need group culture, how much we need shared interaction systems. Yeah, and I, I think that that was picked up on not only by uh, individuals, but also by larger institutions. Like a, uh, it wasn't too far into COVID when I turned on the TV and they started to have uh, uh, concerts that were live on, on television in order to uh, I don't know, give a, a, a sense of connection to what was was once where people were going to concerts, but now they're in your own living room, maybe as an effort to to help give that sense. Well, it was an attempt, and it was an attempt that, you know, reflected the, the need for, for group culture and the limits of establishing a group culture when you don't have kind of face-to-face interaction, you know, I, I suspect in uh, a decade or so, you know, Zoom will figure out better than they have done, and it's remarkable what they have done, but they will figure out better ways in which we can communicate with each other uh, as we do in, you know, that a group of 20 people on Zoom, we will figure out how that can be more like 20 people sitting in a seminar room. To get more of a virtual touch rather than um, simply being uh, audio and, and video, uh, an additional uh, picking up on other sensates. Right, and how we will, we will learn. You know, one of the great things about interaction is interruptions. You know, that we can look at each other, we can get a sense of who's about done speaking and, you know, who goes next. And that's more difficult to do on platforms such as Zoom. Um, You know, and that's why uh, Zoom conversations never feel like full conversations because you don't have that back and forth. Well, Gary, uh, a new... Uh, a, a newer uh, Netflix Netflix release came out called uh, uh, The Queen's Gambit. It's not uh, brand new anymore, and I, I think that uh, our audience may uh, at least have heard of Queen's Gambit by now. But you wrote a book back in 2015 that was released by the University of Chicago Press called Players and Pawns, How Chess Builds Community and Culture, which is right on topic with today, but also relates to to that Netflix release, Queen's Gambit. Could, could you tell me a little bit more uh, about this publication and, and how it uh, relates to Queen's Gambit? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, what I wanted to do in uh, Players and Pawns was to analyze the group basis of a larger social system. And the social system that I chose was the world of chess. A lot of my research deals with leisure activities some with sports and games and and so forth, high school debate, Little League Baseball, Dungeons and Dragons, and so forth. So 
chess was going to be my topic, but unlike, say, Little League Baseball, which depends very much on those 15 young boys and, and girls who will play on a team, uh, chess has a larger system. Um, and I was interested in the development of local groups within that larger system. And I was particularly interested in the role of the, the way that status gets created. This is something that is very much connected with uh, uh, the Queen's Gambit, uh, you know, based on this, this wonderful novel by Walter Tevis, which uh, is probably maybe even better than the, uh, the, the television show. Uh, one of the things about chess is that if you get into competitive chess, they have a they develop a rating system. So you get a rating that is anywhere from 100 to oh approximately 3,000. It is said that God himself or herself, I should say, has a rating of 3,000. No matter how bad you are you can never have a rating below 100. And so depending on your rating, you get a sense of who your colleagues are. And we see this in some regards in the Queen's Gambit as the, uh, uh, the lead character uh, develops her skills and becomes better as she becomes better, she becomes part of different social worlds. You know, so just the local world at, at her school, uh, then in uh, Kentucky, I believe is, is where she's located, Lexington, Kentucky, uh, and then eventually to the national American level where she's connected with other masters and grandmasters, and then finally her role in the global scene. And at each of these levels, there is a group culture, there is a way of playing chess. And so when I saw the uh, television show, you know, I was able to see the connections with my book uh, as chess has become at least temporarily more popular. Uh, it is my hope that, that some of those people who were now playing chess with friends or teaching their children to play chess will say, I've got to buy this book. Uh, well, that, that would be flattering to me and, uh, uh, and, and certainly beneficial to my children who, who uh, hope for whatever royalties can, uh, can result. Uh, at any rate, that's, you know, I, I thought the world of chess as reflected in the Queen's Gambit and reflected in Players and Pawns is a fascinating sociological subculture or set of sociological group cultures. And in some ways, the game of chess relates back to uh, the initial book, that, uh, the newest book of yours, The Hinge, because chess in some ways is a hinge in itself. To, uh, serving as a mediator between individual interactions and a larger society of game. Yes, that, that's right. I, in the book, uh, and I think in the hinge as well, I talk about what I call soft communities. And chess is an example of a soft community. It is 
as clear in the Queen's Gambit and as, as well as anyone who knows chess, that there, <clears throat> that there are a lot of strange people in the world of chess, people with considerable idiosyncrasies, but they are accepted. They are accepted if they accept the basic rules of the subculture. That is the desire to play chess together. And they can be weird outside of the chess game, outside the tournament. Many of them are, uh, but as long as they have that commitment, that imagined community, they become part of the world of chess. They are accepted and they belong. Thank you for joining me today, Dr. Fine. This was an excellent conversation, and I and I look forward to uh, having you on the show again in the, in the future. Uh, but one one dying question that I like to ask all of my hosts, and I particularly would like to ask you today, is what is it that you're working on now? Oh, absolutely. <clears throat> well, I have a book manuscript, which is based on my research on senior citizen progressive activists. And in this book, I am interested in the culture of resistance and in particular how this organization, it's an organization that it has about 500 members, but about 20, 30 serious members, uh, active members, how they develop a sense of groupness, what their interaction system is like, and how they become a tiny public. And so I'm working through the, the role of seniors in a social movement. Sociologists have very rarely studied uh, senior involvement, in part, I think, because ethnographers tend to be younger scholars. I'm one of the, the oldest ethnographers, the oldest field workers around. Uh, but, uh, you know, and so that gave me a certain entree into this world of uh, elderly activists. So that is a book that is, I now have a draft of, and my current research, which I'll just mention, is a study of Civil War enthusiasts, Civil War buffs, let's call them, uh, people who care about American collective memory. And so that has been somewhat held up because the, the group meetings that I normally would attend are no longer uh, operating because of the COVID virus. But that's, you know, that's currently what uh, my, my next ethnography. Excellent. I look forward to uh, to seeing them released and then having the opportunity to read them and then potentially having you on the show if that's something that uh, uh, that you are willing to do. Uh, I will plan. I will put in my calendar for two years from now that I will I will join you once again. But I it hope that it's not two years before we uh, at least have a conversation. I hope that we're able to get back together before then and. That we're able to see each other at a conference and uh, and do more than just email back and forth. Although that is uh, 
a, a nice uh, touch with with being able to connect with one another without the uh, ability to see face to face. I am looking forward to face to face interaction, uh, and uh, hopefully, it will be sooner rather than later. Time will tell. Thank you, Dr. Fine, for joining me again. And uh, yes, this is an episode of New Books and Sociology, a channel on the New Books Network. Have a great day.